the neuroscience of starting over and making positive change. Keep listening on to hear more only here on the People Scientist Podcast. Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 140, where I aim to arm us with some scientific information so we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. How is your holiday break? How is your new year going? I hope that it has been great, and I endeavor to make today's episode to impart some good change for you to give you something to think about, to make your year even better. For today's episode, I wanted to talk a bit about an abstract topic, of course, with a neuroscience perspective whenever possible. Today, I wanted to talk about the neuroscience of starting over, of change, of having confidence to go after what it is that we desire. How does the brain of someone who is open to change and is confident and successful compared to someone who may be afraid of change, to someone who lacks confidence. Can we use this information to our advantage in order to incite some positive changes in our life? So whether we are starting over in a romantic relationship, looking for new friends, starting a new job, moving to a new city, wanting to start a new hobby, let's work on that. So let's dive into those scientific details, shall we? But before we do, as we always do, Let's start off with a foregone fact where I share a scientific finding from long ago. The end of a relationship and the search for a new relationship is a common event that many of us will experience. In the United States, for example, it is estimated that approximately 50% of marriages will end in divorce. Back in 1965, George Lavinger wanted to understand the reasons for divorce. So George interviewed 600 couples that were undergoing divorce. He interviewed the wives and husbands separately. Back in 1965, what were the most commonly reported reasons for divorcing? Both the husbands and wives reported the same top two reasons, mental cruelty and neglect of home or of children. But there were some differences in the reporting, too. Women were more likely to attribute their divorce to their husband's alcohol abuse and lack of love. In contrast, the men were more likely to report that their divorce was due to sexual incompatibility and interference in the relationship by the in-laws. What do you think? Do you think that nearly 60 years later, these same reasons will hold true? Or do you think that the reasons for people to start over again and divorce have changed? Well, I will tell you. In 2010, Hawkins in the Journal of Divorce and Remarriage 
reported that most couples divorced because the number top no, top number one reason was that they simply grew apart. The second top reason was that they were unable to communicate properly to one another. The third reason, financial problems. The fourth most common reason was infidelity. And the fifth most common reason was not getting enough attention from their spouse. So the reasons for divorce, for 60 years later, have certainly changed. Perhaps these reasons are reflective of our world today, where growing and changing may be easier or more common today than it was decades ago. So maybe growing apart. Maybe that's the reason why growing apart is a more common reason for divorce. For example, it is more common for us to have multiple different jobs or careers in our lifetime in today's generation than it was in the previous one. So changing and growing apart may be more common today than it was in 1965. Which leads well into today's topic about starting over, changing, and self-improving. So how about we get into the core takeaways of today's topic, which is the neuroscience of starting over. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about the neuroscience of starting over and going after what it is that we want. I bet many times in our life, we're going to have to make some big changes. For example, changing careers, going back to school, starting a new relationship, moving to a new city. So in this episode, I propose that our ability to do this with success involves three things. One, overcoming our fear of rejection or our fear of failure. Two, our self-confidence, or our perceived ability to do something with success. Number three, our strategies for goal-making and habit formation. In this episode, I will share clinical studies in neuroscience in order to provide some evidence-based strategies that we can all start using today. For example, did you know that affect labeling and specific planning can help with our self-confidence? Did you know that we can target a brain region called the striatum to help us form new habits? Did you know that we can target our interpeduncular nucleus to reduce withdrawal symptoms when breaking an old, unhealthy habit? I'm going to tell you all of that and more. So now, let's get into those scientific details. The 18th century philosopher Edmund Burke wrote, No passion so effectively robs the mind of all of its powers of acting and reasoning as fear. End quote. The fear of failure, the fear of rejection, the fear of losing is, the, is a very large, if not the most significant reason that we stop ourselves from changing and going after what it is that we want. Joel and colleagues in 2019 in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships conducted a study where they interviewed approximately 600 people about their life and about their relationships. The most interesting finding of this study that I thought? When people looked back on their life, they felt the pain of regret far more than the pain of rejection. They were far more likely to remember, bring up, and feel the pain of missed opportunities, wondering the what-ifs. In contrast, they viewed their moments of rejection later on in life, often positively, with the perspective of, well, at least I tried, I put myself out there, and now I know. So the takeaway of this study, for us to go after what it is that we want, because the pain of rejection 
appears to be temporary and far less painful than the pain of our regret. So is there something that we can do to help us cope with rejection? Well, Cranes in the journal Psychiatry in 2017 reported that in 180 participants, there seemed to be a correlation between how sensitive someone was to rejection and their problem solving. Individuals that were sensitive to rejection tended to take things quite personally. They tended to think that being rejected must have been due to a personal attack on them. Whereas people who seemed less sensitive to rejection would approach the rejection with curiosity, with logic, and with planning. For example, people who deal with rejection well tend to not get upset when rejected, but instead approach it by asking follow-up questions or by proposing another option. Let me give an example. Maybe an example that many of us can relate to is asking our boss for a raise. Let's say we ask our boss for a raise and they say no. Well, the way I see it, we have two options here. One, we can be sad or upset about it and think that it was because our boss doesn't like us. Or two, our other option is that we can follow up and ask our boss if there was a particular reason why there was something holding them back from being able to say yes. Because once we know the why, we can take action. Perhaps the reason is simply because it's not in the budget and it was nothing personal to us. Then perhaps instead of requesting for a raise, we could come up with a new idea and ask our boss instead for an extra week of holidays. So the core takeaway from this first part of the podcast is to not let the fear of rejection, the fear of failure, stop us from going after what we want. Let's not turn that into regret. Rejection and failure is a normal part of our life. Even the best in the world fail. Think of it this way. The top teams in major league sports still lose over half of their games. What counts is that we get back up, that we learn from that loss, and that we do not take it personally, and we keep moving forward. Now that we have recognized fear of rejection, the fear of losing, to move forward with change, one needs self-confidence. So let's talk about that. Confidence is our believed ability that we can achieve something. The probability that we believe we are capable to do something with success. So let's ponder that for a moment. Can you think of something that you'd like to achieve or go after? For example, for some that could be to achieve a higher level of fitness, to find a job with better financial security, to get out of a bad relationship and to be in a supportive relationship. The determining factor in this is our confidence in our ability to successfully do so. A self-fulfilling prophecy, so to speak. I think I can, so I can. So to have confidence that we can do some things, we can create a roadmap with the how-tos toward our goal. So for example, let's say our goal is to become more fit. One reason why supplement companies and weight loss programs are very profitable and popular is because they answer the what, the how. It gives us the tools and the how-to to feel confident that we can accomplish something. What these types of programs offer is really the mentality of confidence. They are selling confidence. So let's say if our goal is to be fit, we can instead curate our list of how-tos on our own. We can make a plan to do exercises that we enjoy, like finding a dance studio or a gym near us, 
and putting that on a calendar, not a to-do list. That is because a key feature found in successful people is that they don't have to-do lists, but they have calendars where they set aside dedicated time for different activities. Perhaps we can also find fun exercise clothes that make us feel good. We can find a diet plan that has worked for other people like our friends and perhaps likely to work for us too. We must answer the question first, what will help me feel more confident in being successful here? How about another example? Let's say we want to change our career and go back to school. We might feel unsure about this big, scary change. What can we do to feel more confident about it? Well, perhaps we can read more about the major or topic that we plan to study so we have a bit of a foundation and can illustrate to ourselves that we are capable of learning about that topic. Perhaps going to the campus and meeting some of the staff or students there to see how our day could function on a regular basis. We could think about how we'd travel to campus, where we would live. I know that it sounds like simple things, but these small gestures can add up and influence our ability in feeling confident to do something new. And little by little, it won't seem so scary. So how about we dive into some of the neuroscience so we can have some science-based strategies too. Freewin in the journal Scan in 2013 conducted a really neat study. Using functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, they measured the recruitment of different brain regions in 20 women to understand how self-esteem might be processed in the brain of women. They wanted to understand how the brain may signal differently in women with low self-esteem versus high self-esteem. Firstly, the scientists identified certain brain regions involved in self-confidence, or more specifically, self-referential processing. They observed the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, the anterior cingulate cortex responded during negative self-reflection, particularly in women who regarded themselves more negatively. But the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex responded particularly in women who experienced greater positive emotions during positive self-reflection. The women who exhibited more negative self-talk exhibited an increased right amygdala response. So what this study gives us is brain regions that are involved in positive self-reflection and negative self-reflection. So now we have some targets. Those brain regions are portions of the medial prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. So let's take these findings and turn them into actionable goals. So the amygdala was implicated in negative self-reflection and low self-esteem. This brain region is often studied in the context of emotions like fear, aggression, sadness, but some positive emotions like happiness too. So one easy approach we can all start using today to help influence the recruitment of the amygdala is affect labeling. In multiple episodes, I've spoken of this technique, and it is one of my favorites. Briefly, affect labeling involves us stopping, taking a deep breath, and defining our emotion very specifically. Like, I feel jealous. I feel nervous. I feel rejected. Then next, identifying precisely what it is that is causing us to feel this way. This technique brings on board our logical decision-making brain regions and inhibits our emotional brain regions like the amygdala. This technique helps us to become more of a critical thinker and less emotionally reactive. This is a great technique to enhance one's emotional intelligence. can help prevent us from negative self-talk. If you don't believe me, you can take a look at the publication by Costa Freda in the journal Brain Research Reviews in 2008, 
where they pooled together 385 different neuroimaging studies to support the utility of the affect labeling technique. Let's target the other brain region the scientists noted to be important in positive self-evaluation, and that is the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. This brain region was more on board in women that had positive self-esteem. So how can we bring this brain region on board? We can by planning and decision-making. So step one was to affect label to get those negative emotions under control. Step two is let's make a decision. Decision-making brings on board that medial prefrontal cortex. So how about we make a decision to feel better about ourselves? Let's make a decision towards self-improvement. Let's decide to stop feeling sorry for ourselves, for example. Third step to bring on board that brain region is to plan. Planning brings on this prefrontal cortex. And confidence is rooted in the aspect of us attempting to do something and being successful at it. So let's plan something that helps us gain a new skill, something we can accomplish. What will make us feel better about ourselves? We can plan a workout routine that we will enjoy that will make us happy, like taking a dance class. We can start some art projects and feel satisfied and have a visual cue of what it is that we've created and accomplished. Perhaps we can learn a new language and be happy with our progress. Perhaps going for a run and measuring how fast we can run for a duration or certain distance. It is important to measure our progress as seeing our ability to achieve our goals is an important aspect to having self-confidence. So the technique of bringing on board our logical part of our brain to one, identify what it is that we are feeling, why we feel that way, and making a decision to, bet, to feel better, and then planning out activities to help solidify that confidence is a neuroscience-based strategy to help with low self-esteem or negatively feeling about oneself and instead to enhance one's self-esteem and self-confidence. Let me provide some evidence from other scientists that new activities can enhance self-esteem and positive feelings about oneself. Jelani in the journal Health Psychology Research in 2019 recruited 60 participants living with type 2 diabetes. The scientist's hypothesis was that having the participants plan out their own exercise routine and having the participants take part in that routine would enhance their self-esteem, their confidence, their sleep, and their mood. So half the participants carried on as normal as the control group. The other half planned out their exercise routine, which included working out three times a week and the use of a treadmill in between those days for 12 weeks. So what happened? Those taking part in their planned exercise program saw a 33% improvement in their self-esteem score, whereas the control group worsened slightly. How about another study to support this strategy? Lee Grant in the Journal of Family Violence last year recruited women who suffered domestic violence. Unfortunately, women with domestic violence are prone to low self-esteem, negative mood, and low self-efficacy. So a particularly important group to help with raising self-esteem and confidence. One-third of the women underwent counseling. One-third underwent counseling and a physical exercise program. And one-third received no treatment as the control group. What did the scientists find? Women who planned out an exercise program and received counseling improved the most in regard to how attractive they found themselves and their global self-esteem score which hopefully translated to self-confidence and to go after achieving a self-safer and happier lifestyle that they desired. So, so far we've talked about overcoming our fear of rejection, enhancing our self-confidence, 
Now the next step is to establish some healthy new habits and goals. Let's get into the neuroscience of that. We know that certain brain regions regulate our ability to form automatic habits. We also know that if we want to break a bad habit, we have to override those same habit brain regions. Luckily with neuroscience, we know how to do that. Amaya and Smith in the journal Current Opinion and Behavioral Sciences in 2018 wrote a review on this topic. The strength of a habit can be determined by the activity of the brain regions that regulate habitual learning, such as certain parts of the striatum. So a current habit that we have likely is activating specific parts of our striatum. Can you think of a habit that you have currently? Make it a healthy habit. For example, perhaps brushing our teeth every morning and night. Because this current habit is likely to already be activating this brain region, we can hop on that wagon and continue to activate this brain region with another healthy habit to strengthen that habit even more. For example, if someone wants to learn a new language as their goal, what they could do is to attempt to learn five new words every time they brush their teeth in the morning and evening. They brush their teeth twice a, do- twice a day, that is quite an ingrained habit. So now they are adding a new habit to that old habit. This makes it easier to attain because their old habit is already so ingrained in their routine and likely already activates these habit brain regions. Another example of this strategy is to go to the gym or an exercise class at the end of our commute every day before going home. Our commute is probably a habit already, and instead of going home where there may be cues to previous unhealthy habits, we can add on exercise to our commuting routine. Here's another example I thought of. If our goal is to be more flexible or to do more exercise, we can add this on to another habit that already exists. For example, many of us, when we wake up, we normally will maybe go on our phone for 10 minutes or so before we start our day. So we can add stretching for 10 minutes while we're on our phone when we wake up as one quick way of adding new habits to our routine. Another strategy that may take longer is to find something that is so intrinsically motivating that we want to carve out time into our daily routine for this new habit. In this scenario, we have to use our planning goal-directed and decision-making brain regions first before they can become automatic actions. In this scenario, specific and actionable goals are best. So we can't just say, I need to exercise more. No, we need to be more specific. We need to make it actionable. Our goal could instead be rephrased to say, I am going to do hot yoga Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 6.30 p.m. after work every week. This means that we need to look at our schedule and think of the specifics on how to achieve this. Do we need to take our workout clothes with us? When we go to work, do we need to buy a membership or class passes in advance? Do we need to ask someone to take these classes with us so that we are held accountable? Successful people that instill new healthy habits are more likely to schedule the task into their calendar rather than having a general to-do list. That is the difference between a general, unactionable goal and a specific, actionable goal. Using a calendar instead of a to-do list. And I personally do this for planning my experiments out in the lab, for example, and it's worked out really well for me. So how long do you think it takes to form a new habit? Lally and colleagues in the European Journal of Social Psychology in 2010 specifically studied this. They stated it takes anywhere from 18 to 254 days, with a median of 66 days. So the variation is quite high. 
So keep in mind that it may take longer than what we might expect. That's okay, but on average, just over two months it will take to instill a new habit. The authors noted that if the action was simple, it was far more likely to result in a strong habit more quickly versus a complex action. So for example, let's say we want to learn a new language. Memorizing five new words of that new language every day while we brush our teeth is more likely to form a habit quickly than us choosing to approach it by saying, okay, I'll learn five verbs, five nouns, five questions, and 10 statements in a new language every day. So keeping our goals simple in the beginning may be a good idea. Then we can expand our goals from there. The authors also noted that performing the task with the same cues at a similar time every day seem to help institute greater automaticity or greater development of the habit. A cue can be a location, like in our living room every day. It can be a sound, such as a song. It can be seeing our running shoes that we're going to put on and run with every day. These are all cues to remind us of the action that we are about to take. Let me give another example. Do you ever realize how the song or sound that we have playing for our alarm to wake us up in the morning over time might be so associated with a negative feeling if we don't really like waking up in the morning? So if we ever hear that same sound in a different context, like let's say it's someone's sound for the ringing of their phone, that it might actually incite that same negative feeling because I associate that sound with being woken up. That is what we call a learned response to a cue but we can do the same thing with a favorable response to help us form a habit. For example, we can associate a song or a sound with the completion of our workout or the completion of a task. Over time, we will associate a feeling of success with that song or with that sound. Then we can play that song as a cue to help motivate us to begin that task when we feel unmotivated. And that's because we've now associated with success with a new cue. We can use that to our advantage to help motivate us. Now, how about the opposite? What if we want to break a bad habit? Well, referring back to the previous paper mentioned by Amaya and Smith, they note that the strength of the habit can also be determined by the weakening or inhibition of the cognitive and conscious thought centers of the brain. So essentially what this means is the more automatic and subconscious we make our actions, the more likely they are to become habitual. In order to break a habit, we need to strengthen the recruitment of our cognitive decision-making centers, meaning we need to consciously think of our actions and reassess what our goal is. We can ask ourselves, do I really want this cigarette right now? Do I really need to eat this chocolate right now? Why do I even want this? What emotions am I feeling right now? Am I bored? Am I sad? What is it that I'm actually feeling? Breaking that automatic response of craving whatever our vice is and questioning it is the first step to overriding the habitual centers of the brain. However, once we ask ourselves that question and decide to stop that habit, our neural circuits in the brain now become important, and that is the withdrawal and reward centers of the brain. And I elaborated on this back in episode one of the podcast, but briefly I will describe it here for us. Our environment is our cue or our trigger, to receive a reward. So if we smoke a cigarette, for example, at 7 a.m. every morning at our kitchen table, that time of day and that kitchen area, that kitchen table, is a cue to us. If we sit in that area and consciously think instead, do I want this cigarette? That is great. That's step number one. 
But then next, what's probably going to happen is our withdrawal or disappointment centers of our brain, like the lateral habenula and the interpeduncular nucleus, might be activated. These brain regions are activated and can induce feelings of stress, anxiety, and withdrawal. And a lot of work has been done to prove this by many scientists, such as Andrew Tapper, my mentor Paul Kenny, as well as Mariella DiBiase, and many more. So if we want to start to feel, if we start to feel those feelings of stress, anxiety, and withdrawal, then we might be likely to relapse and go back to our old ways. So how do we prevent these brain regions from becoming activated? Two ways. One, we can get rid of our cues. For example, for the first while, we might want to avoid the spaces where we normally do our unhealthy activity, like where we smoke or where we eat junk food. Another strategy is that we may also change what that environment looks like so that it is no longer a cue to our brain. I know it sounds funny, but we do this repeatedly in animal studies. We learn to associate rewarding things like junk food with certain rooms, packaging, locations. And if we change what those spaces look like, it tricks our brain into no longer thinking that it is the same cue. For example, we can change the color of the walls in that room, put up new artwork, change the layout, like where our couch is, where we sit, and where we face. This may help change the environment just enough to reduce the symptoms of withdrawal and craving because that cue no longer exists. We can also do other rewarding activities in those same spaces, like listening to our favorite music, talking to a friend on the phone, reading a book, watching a comedy, doing stretching exercises, etc. Once we have recognized what our cues are that make us crave whatever our negative habit or vice is, Another step is to deal with the withdrawal symptoms. And mindfulness-based relapse prevention is an option. This strategy was written by Sarah Bowen and colleagues. She published a clinician's guide to this book in 2011. Essentially, this strategy is a meditation strategy that aims to train us to be more mindful and conscious of our thoughts, cravings, environment, and goals which is really step one that I mentioned previously, meaning to be more conscious of our actions in order to break the automatic responses that we have in order to override those habit brain centers. Then Sarah goes on to train individuals to learn to be comfortable with their withdrawal symptoms as opposed to trying to escape or get rid of them. So the clinicians would ask the subjects, for example, what was your direct experience and how did your mind and body react to that? And over time, the individuals may place themselves in an environment that is likely to induce craving and practice their mindfulness there. Riding the wave of craving, feeling the craving, but choosing to feel it rather than escape or numb it. Realizing that it is okay to feel this way and to understand that it will subside. This is a meditation strategy that allows us to be far more conscious of our reactions and feelings to our environment around us. And Sarah has shown that this strategy, when combined with other strategies, can be very helpful in those suffering with drug addiction. She published some work on this in 2009 and in 2019 for those living with cocaine addiction in the American Journal of Psychiatry, for example. Another strategy to deal with withdrawal symptoms is to override brain regions like the lateral habenula by adding other healthful, rewarding things to our life. So, for example, adding things to our life that can release dopamine in the reward centers of the brain, such as listening to our favorite music, exercising, heat therapy, such as a hot bath, a hot shower, or sauna use, 
social interaction, and chatting with good people, watching comedy shows, playing a strategy-based video game, and more. And I go into details about the studies of these back all the way in episode one. So in brief, how to break an old habit? We can be conscious of our actions and ask ourselves why we are doing this. This conscious thought will help override our habit-forming brain regions. The second step is to deal with the withdrawal so we don't relapse. To do this, we can change our cues, change our environment. We can use mindfulness-based meditation to recognize how we react to that environment and become comfortable with these withdrawal feelings. And lastly, which would be a replacement therapy, is to add healthful, rewarding things to our routine to override the lateral hobenula withdrawal response. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army. The science behind starting over and making positive changes. It is likely that we will start over and need to make big changes in our life many times over. The key to doing this successfully? I personally think it involves three things. One, overcoming our fear of rejection. And being comfortable with the fact that rejection is a normal part of life. That even the most successful have a lot of losses and failures. And realizing that we will feel the pain of regret far more than the pain of rejection. To anticipate that rejection is normal and common. And to approach it with curiosity rather than pain and hurt. The second component to starting over making positive change, I believe, is to build self-confidence. Meaning increasing our belief that we can accomplish something with success. I think that we can do that by A, affect labeling our negative self-talk. B, planning and thinking about strategies to make us feel more comfortable with our goal. I think the third component to starting over is about habit formation. Let's develop healthy habits toward our goals by using a calendar instead of a to-do list, by adding new habits to previous ones, by making our goals and habits simple and specific. So for example, instead of saying, I will work out, let's say I'm going to take this hot yoga class Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 6.30 p.m. every week. We can break our old unhealthy habits by bringing on board our logical reasoning brain regions, questioning what it is that we're doing, what we are feeling and using some strategies I outlined to deal with the withdrawal and craving. I hope that this episode was insightful and useful for you. Thank you for hanging out with me today. And if you enjoyed the episode, then please consider sharing it with a friend, buying me a coffee, or following me on social media to learn some extra tidbits of information to see some of the studies that I cite in each episode. The instructions on how to do all of that are in the description box to the show. I hope that you all have a wonderful two weeks, and I look forward to meeting you back here again in two weeks' time. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.